Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to episode 36 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton. It's the week that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry got engaged. Hurrah! Congrats. I think it's actually great that he's marrying someone divorced, but more importantly, mixed race, because think of all those little girls who can now see themselves in a princess who have never been able to see themselves in the very homogenous, very white royal family. Mm. Unlike every other news source though, this episode is not going to be dedicated to who Meghan will wear, where they will moon and what their children will be called. I do wish this had happened a week ago though because we'd have loved discussing it with Tina. Yeah, because Tina was the one who said, you know, she's the woman who's really capturing the zeitgeist in an exciting way at the moment. I'm really happy for them, you know. I'm amazed at how happy, true joy I actually feel for them. Um, I'm not a royalist. But maybe I am this week. I'm just so over the moon for them. It's like buy me a corgi and uh, slap a golden jubilee plate on my mantelpiece. It's mantel sounding piece. like you wish we were dedicating the high low to Megan. I don't actually. But do you know what it is? It's last night I was listening to their interview, their 15 minute interview that they did. I listened to the entire thing. And it is weird because you do. I did have a moment where I just thought, they don't owe us this information. Have you listened to the interview? I disagree. I think, unfortunately, given their position, they sort of do owe us this relation. I know what you owe mean. Us this information. But I would say that the um, the information is so joyful this time around. I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons to whatever love is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Miss Charles. I'm really happy for them. I'm just glad we're not dedicating the whole episode to what she's wearing. I just loved how open-hearted she is. Mm. She's so good at expressing herself. And in turn, you could see that she brings that out in him, which I just found very heartwarming. We are so thrilled, by the way, that you all loved our Tina Brown episode as much as we did. We've been blown away by the positive response to it. As well as blown away by the woman herself. What have you been up to this week, Pandora? So I have officially entered my third trimester. Woohoo! Decided that's actually a really good time of year for me because I am very on festive trend because I'm shaped like a Christmas bauble, (laughs) a pudding... (laughs) A snowman and Father Christmas. I'm actually looking for, God, the high is useful for this, a Father Christmas jumper, which has that patent belt that goes across the belly. Uh, so You if won't believe this, but one, I've actually just ordered just a Father pop- Christmas costume that arrived yesterday. Interesting. Not, not sure I want to commit that much, <laughs> but would like to emphasise the belly with a Father Christmas jumper. So if anyone's found a good one, I often find that Primark... They're good for a Christmas jumper. This, yeah. I can't f- quite face going in. Because I went into Ikea last week and almost killed myself. And I feel like Primark in December will be the same. Yes. But if anyone wants to send me a little link, that would be excellent. Are you not going to ask why I've ordered a Father Christmas outfit? I don't need to ask that kind of thing. <laughs> I'm sure you're wearing it to host your Christmas dinner. And then afterwards you'll dress up as a hoover and go to all your favourite spots of the last 15 years. 
Because that's the kind of shit you do. Actually, it's for my personalised Christmas cards I'm sending out this year. Oh my God, this is amazing. I sometimes don't know if... I wonder if you'd be like this if you weren't single. I do think Do you that. think someone would cap your... Weird. Um, Eccentricities, <laughs> yeah. I'm actually writing a piece this week. I'm trying to resurrect the Dolly Mail. And I'm writing a piece this week about what I've learned in six months living on my own. And something I have noticed is there's much more room for you to sort of workshop your personality. I love that, though. I think that's great. That's really exciting that you're resurrecting the Dolly Mail. That's Dolly's newsletter for those of you that feel like you just don't read or listen to enough of Dolly. (laughs) Anyway, I'm very invested in you getting this jumper. So if anyone knows of one, do alert us. Thank you very much. Thank you also to anyone who shopped my big clothes and furniture sale that I pushed out on Instagram. I donated half of um, the money that I made to charity and I've just sent off a load of checks for £900 to the bloody good period to breast cancer research and to women for women international so big thank you to anyone that bought something off me although they were too they were too fast there are a couple of things i really wanted it goes like the speed of light it does yeah have you been reading or listening to anything this week you'd like to tell me about i underwent if that's the right word my first pre-season viewing of love actually which is a solid favorite of mine along with the holiday I refuse to let Lindy West and her epic piece about all the faults in love actually ruin it for me although I do have a few issues of my own one of which is Tony being used in multiple roles and scenes he appears driving Colin in a van (laughs) backstage at a catering event and lighting Two naked... What do Martin Freeman and, uh, and Joanna Page actually do? You know, they're naked miming sex scenes before yeah. the actors come in. That's not a role. That's not a stunt double. I think it's a nude double. A nude lighting double? Is yes. that a thing? Yeah, well, think about Notting Hill when Julia Roberts is like... massage the breast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when she's like Mel Gibson has like a fuzzy... Butt. Does his own ass work. Yeah, but that... I agree, but they're not in the film. They are nude, lighting, double they might be extras. They might be stand-ins, maybe. <laughs> anyway, so it did seem a little bit like the top dogs at Love actually felt like there were not quite enough black actors to play different characters. So I would say mm. that that's potentially one issue. And it's a shame because the rest of the film is so realistic. So realistic. Um, Colin finding all those religious American girls who can't afford pyjamas. Yeah. I, I will absolutely forever love it. And I and, and do you know what? That the scene that gets me every single time is Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman because it's so true, saying, Would you stay, knowing life would be a little bit worse, or would you leave? And that God, that's powerful. She's just wonderful. Um so I'd I enjoyed- prefer them up at Christmas Carol. But this is one of those places where we diverge slightly. Brilliant. I've also been enjoying You Would Love This, I Think. I suddenly added an I think tell because me. I can never quite tell what's going to set your loins on fire. Go on. So The Sinner, have you read anything about it? No. It's an eight-parter. It was massive in the US, biggest new series of the year. It's on Netflix now, exec produced by Jessica Beale, who we have not seen in much at all. Yeah. She's obviously gorgeous, mm, but I is. didn't know much about her acting smarts. And it's, as Polly Vernon described it, a why done it rather than a who done it. And it's literally just eight parter, 40 minutes long. You can do it over three nights if you're me, a couple of hours a night. <laughs> and Jessica Beale essentially plays this young mother who stabs a random man on the beach in front of her husband and son. And we look into why. And it is absolutely brilliant I, ca- I can't really explain how 
you would not predict any of the twists, but they are completely believable, highly emotional, really sad, really satisfying. It's one of the best things. I'd say it's better than House of Cards or Orange is the New Black. Where can I watch it? Netflix. So that's very good. I highly recommend the Medigliani exhibition at the Tate Modern. Oh, I've just booked my ticket for that. So I read this brilliant piece by Laura Freeman in the Sunday Times Culture magazine after the Ikea trip of hell on Sunday, before <laughs> I went about Medigliani. And it was so evocative. She describes the women in Medigliani's exhibitions as giraffe-necked, almond-eyed, rouged and mardy. Which I love. And she says that unlike Renoir, who in his late 70s told Medigliani that he didn't consider a nude finished until he felt the need to slap her on her painted bottom, Medigliani wanted more than to show a woman's body. He wanted to show you her brain, her soul, her ambition, her fire. It's wonderful and you will love it, Dolly, as there are so many bushes on display, which actually got Medigliani into a lot of trouble at the time, almost exactly 100 years ago to the date of this exhibition coming out, which is such a neat um, coincidence. His um, exhibition in Paris which was obviously considered a fairly liberal place was shut down because of all the bushies really so many bushies why are bushes why were they more obscene than tits they just hadn't been seen right. Bo- boobies and bums fine yeah. but hairy muffs oh I'm really looking forward to seeing seeing that. all the muffs yeah. seeing all the muffs yeah. <laughs> I also learned a new phrase this week from the New York Times writer Barry Weiss which I had been unwittingly searching for without knowing it and it is moral flattening It basically means reducing all crimes, whether large or small, to the same level playing field and thus losing any nuance. Barry tweeted, Are others disturbed by the moral flattening going on? Glenn Thrush, Al Franken should not be mentioned in the same breath as Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey. And it reminded me of a piece written by the often controversial, but bear with me, Giles Corrin in The Times last week, where he talks about how teenage peccadilloes are not the same as Weinsteinery or Weinsteineridge. A vlogger named Jack Maynard was chucked off by a celebrity last week after it was revealed, he's now 23, after it was revealed that age 16, he'd asked a girl over the internet if he could see her in her bra. So daft, yes. Inappropriate, Mm. yes. But they were 14 and 16. And I would say this is a good example highlighted by Corin of what Barry would call moral flattening Mm. as he was chucked off I'm a Celeb and suddenly he was in the same kind of ballpark as Harvey Weinstein. And I do think we have to be really careful not to lump all these men or women for example, Lena Dunham, into the same bracket. And we must allow for nuance in this kind of time. Yes, I agree. Another great piece I read is Hadley Freeman on anorexia for The Guardian. Oh, yeah, this has been shared a lot. Has it? Mm. Well, she's written about um, anorexia a few times for The Guardian. This last one um, was on Saturday in the Saturday Mag, and we'll share the link in the um, show notes. Dolly, I think you'd find it really interesting. Um, And she writes it after a study was circulated that said that women could be helped through their eating disorder if they read some feminist theory. She said it wasn't feminist theory that cured my anorexia, obviously. Hadley says, I'm of the opinion that feminism is the answer to pretty much everything. So the idea of bell hooks and Kate Millett swooping in to save the day where all those medical professionals failed certainly has its appeal. But she said it was finding a doctor who could outsmart me that helped her recover at age 17 and not any kind of reading that she did. It's a lovely piece. It's moving and lucid and it offers a... Every time she writes about her struggle with anorexia, so she was severely ill between the ages of 14 and 17, she um, gives it a completely different take. She looks at it from a different angle. So you never feel like she's ploughing the same emotional um, mind yeah, I think because it's such a complicated it. and varied illness. The way she does it, though, is so clever. I think in her column because it's only ever sort of six or seven hundred words, mm. so you're, it's it's not. 
It's, it's, I don't know if this is the right word to use, but it's very accessible. And it's if not you academic. Have, well, if it's... you've never had an eating disorder, yeah. which I haven't, yeah. it's a really interesting way to keep learning new things about an eating disorder is the way Hadley does it. It's maybe once every 18 months. Mm. she And you don't feel like she's like, oh, can't wait to write about it again. You see that she's actually like, I think I've got to write about this again. I think it's probably time I told a little bit more and related it to something that's been circulating in the media that week. And that's so, so helpful of her. Absolutely. What about you, Dolly? What have you been enjoying? Any naked bushes? No naked bushes. Um, the most newsworthy event that's happened in my life Love this week. how serious that was. No naked bushes, but what I have been enjoying this week. Well, you haven't heard the end of the sentence. <laughs> the most newsworthy thing that's happened in my life um, is my purchasing and wearing of a particular pair of trousers. Oh my God, those trousers. <laughs> Describe them to the listeners. Because um, my debut is in the podcast record studio. Column-shaped crows. They're sort of feathery, but made of raggedy big bird material. Pants. Well, big bum pants. Big bird. Big bird pants. <laughs> yes, they are a bit. They do make me look a bit like Big Bird. <laughs> they were an impulse buy from Zara, about thirty quid. I never thought, as a journalist, my most talked about and divisive work would be a pair of trousers. You also must be careful, as two women hosting a podcast. If we talk about fashion, Dolly, we oh, will we'll never be anything but frothy ever again. If you're listening, The Guardian. I look forward to the next <laughs> as Guardian you said, review. Mildly praising, but mostly patronising review from The Guardian. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to talk about my trousers because I am what I am. Fabulous. Shall I set a timer? Yes. So I'd never thought that this would be my most kind of groundbreaking thing, but this has been more divisive than anything in my life. The Guardian's Stu Heritage, who I did a panel with last week, looked at me and said, how many crows had to die to wear that? <laughs> On Twitter, I asked what the general thoughts were. I posted a picture. The response has been universally negative. <laughs> Actor Matthew Horn said, I love you, Dolly. Like everything about you in your existence, but these are hell. <laughs> That's amazing. Fellow podcaster Emma Gannon said simply, Mr. Tumnus. <laughs> Journalist and friend of the Hilo, Sophie Wilkinson said, mate, you need a wax. And my best you friend. You really canvassed for your trousers. I have not received one like genuine Nigel compliment. Like Farage doing the circuit and I receiving know. just endless battering, but still yoinking them out every day. But this is so the best. Is when you told me that they were strictly a day trouser. They are the jazziest pantaloons I've ever seen. But what's so weird is I've never had this before in my life where a garment has been so universally hated. But you love them so but much. But I'm going to keep wearing them. Have you ever had that before? No. <laughs> it's like you're clothed to the criticism. Anyway, um, <laughs> I devoured the Sunday Times this weekend um, while I was at my parents' house. I gave myself a whole weekend of nothing, which was just lovely. Um, and I just thought it was a really good addition to the Sunday Times this weekend. I loved the Morrissey interview where he was his usual bizarre and cantankerous self. Uh, Pandora actually alerted me to the Sunday Times magazine now do this. Gr it's a great format for a podcast. It's like a kind of behind the scenes of making of the magazine for that and week. And it's very short. It's only over 15 minutes. Yeah. And I really enjoy Matt Rudd, who's just drier than a sort of arid desert. Yes. Where he says that Morrissey would probably support, you know, a war in North Korea if no animals were harmed. It's literally with Morrissey, the only bottom line is were animals hurt? If they weren't hurt, 
He'll sub- Trump, fine, as long as animals aren't hurt. Kim yeah. Jong-un, fine, as long as animals weren't hurt. Yeah, it's so funny. And he's just, his the interview was good, but I think the behind the scenes chatter about how kind of difficult he was to wrangle, and unsurprisingly, also, is really interesting. And also how many times um, Eleanor Mills, who's the editor of the Sunday Times magazine, says, and we were really annoyed because he was not meant to have done another interview with someone else. And you get the feeling that him and or his publicist have been a bloody nightmare. Oh, yeah, but this... This is the man who only published his autobiography, his memoir, on the condition that it had to be a Penguin classic <laughs> yes. from the get-go. Um, so, yeah. I've heard you did that, though, with... Um, oh, I did else. not do that. <laughs> that was a joke from Pandora. Um, I also loved Josh Glancy on Liz Smith. He's doing yes. this column out in New York that I'm really enjoying in the Sunday Times magazine. Um, anyone who's reading Tina Brown's Vanity Fair diaries or has read them uh, will love this piece about this famous New York gossip columnist, Liz Smith. And I think he does a really lovely ode to her mm. and kind of recaptures that um, that moment in history in Manhattan. Her column was syndicated to 70 different publications. Oh, my God. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. just doesn't happen now. No. I also love Louise McGilligoddy in Style magazine. She wrote what I see as the sort of perfect style piece, which is a really specific and really honed in... Um, kind of social observation piece about the trend for screen grabbing. And yeah, that was hilarious. I she loved talked it. us through all her different screen grabs. Yeah, we've enjoyed exactly the same things this week. Can I just quickly say on a side note, because this yeah. is a big homage to the Sunday Times, I know it's really annoying if you don't have a subscription because all these things that Dolly is mentioning are behind the paywall. I can only say, as I said before on Twitter... There's a reason why we're always sharing stuff from the Sunday Times. Mm. If, you're, if you are good, and I don't say that because I used to work there, but if you are going to invest in a paywall, you get a lot of bang for your buck. I agree. So please don't tweet us saying, but it's behind a paywall. We know, and we're going to talk about it anyway. Well said. <laughs> I've also been listening to some great podcasts. I love Greta Gerwig on Fresh Air talking about her new film, Lady Bird. Um, it's quite an uncomfortable listen, actually, because Terry Gross... Um, approaches the subject of Woody Allen. Greta Gerwig starred in a Woody Allen film and you really feel Greta Gerwig's discomfort. Was she crying? I listened to it after you said to me, oh God, this yeah. is very interesting. I, she I sa- did think she, she was. Sounded like she, she sounded like she was crying. I completely empathise with her where she says, I'm scared to say the wrong thing. Women are scared to say the wrong thing. But I did just want her to say, yeah, Woody Allen, not great. I did, I did yeah, still. I it went on for a long time and then she said to Terry Grace well I'm going to flip this back at you you've had Louis C.K. on how do you feel and Terry Grace did answer that she said I feel heartbroken I was such a fan of him and his work and I feel heartbroken and I just wanted I know I completely understand especially after Lena Dunham got it so goddamn wrong Mm. I really understand why Greta Gerwig did not want to come out and condemn you know the director of a film that she obviously enjoyed making but she just needed to say that she was sad and she never agreed with I, I just think she needed to say I that. also think it bordered slightly on Bratty at the moment where she said, I've just directed my first film and I want to talk about that. And it's like, well, that's, it's a, great, celebrity. that's a great privilege yeah. for you. Well done. But like, I'm sure there are lots of women who would love to have followed that path who've been downtrodden by patriarchal men along the way. So maybe, Yeah, good point. But, you know, as you said, I see both sides and it's an uncomfortable position to be in. But it's, I just found it a very interesting listen. Um, I've also been listening to the New Yorker Radio Hour, which is hosted by its wonderful editor, David Remnick. 
The episode that I listened to, which is particularly brilliant, is called Will the Harvey Weinstein Scandal Change America? And it's David Remnick interviewing Ronan Farrow, who broke the Weinstein story for The New Yorker. And he shares his perspective of researching and writing that story and speaking to um, the victims and with the staff writer, Alexandra Schwartz. And anyone who doesn't know, Ronan Farrow is the son of Woody Allen and has been very vocal about believing his sister Dylan mm-hmm. um, when she said that she was abused by Woody Allen when she was a child. Um, so he's written a lot about that. He's written a lot about Weinstein. Mm. And you told me this great thing earlier that he said about there's been rumours that Mia Farrow um, had an affair with Frank Sinatra and that Ronan is not Woody Allen's son. But you, what did you say that you... And there was this laugh? huge hullabaloo when she said that or someone said that online and people were putting their pictures next to each other and the, the resemblance is striking. And the only thing he tweeted was something like, look, there's a possibility we're all Frank Sinatra's son because he was this kind of famous philanderer. <laughs> but the episode is really, really good. They talk about why it's significant that the first mass whistleblowing of sexual harassment and abuse happened in show business and what that means and why that happened. They focus a lot on how important it was that some of these women were already well known. So it's debunking this myth, poisonous myth, that women lie about sexual abuse for notoriety. And also it points out the nuances of exactly why a lot of women don't come forward sooner. I really look forward to listening to that. There's been a lot of conversation recently about why we should automatically believe victims, whether we should automatically believe victims. And Alexandra Schwartz talks about that in the podcast. And I'd just like to insert a clip here because I think she really hits the nail on the head. There's a phrase, believe women. Believe women uh, doesn't just mean automatically believe women. The man's word has no weight. I think it's meant as a corrective to what is often the situation, which is often a sense of not believing women as a default. If you were reminded to believe women as a default, it may help to correct so many of these situations. A couple of other lighter podcasts that I've loved. Jessie Ware has started a podcast with her charming mum called Table Manners, um, in which she gets some of her friends in show business. She's had Sam Smith, uh, Will Young, and they come round for dinner and her and her mum cook dinner and they talk about um, food and life and family and love. It's just a really warm, charming podcast. I'm surprised you're not furious that you and Barbara aren't doing that. I know, I know. Um, But it's great. You feel kind of privy to a really intimate conversation. And I also loved Mickey Flanagan on Desert Island Discs. Um, he talks about his very unlikely route and rise to fame as a hugely, hugely successful kind of arena playing stand-up. He's very funny talking about his family and what it's like to go from having nothing to huge amounts of money and how important it is to be honest as a performer about that. And I particularly loved him speaking about his wife, a clip of which I'd like to insert here because they just sound like my kind of couple. We met in the year 2000. At a comedy club, she hadn't actually been watching the comedy. She'd been upstairs, probably drinking her 80 pint of lager or something. And we just fell in love really quickly. And I think part of the attraction was I found a girl who could party. You said 18 pints there. I know you were sort of exaggerating for comedy effect. No, she doesn't drink beer. She drinks high-end gin. Right. But we had a lot of late nights together. And we could sort of feel time running out. I was pushing into my... Is my wife, she was 109 then. No, she, she was pushing on. We did want to settle down and have children, have our little boy. So, this song always just reminds me of sort of getting in at four or five in the morning, 
chink in the last glass of wine. And we always put this album on. Sail away with me, honey. You are a podcasting cookie monster at the moment. You just can't, you just can't stop <laughs> guzzling down those, those pods, can you? The ultimate podcat, as Adam Buxton would say. Adam, if you're listening, get in touch. Please come on our podcast. We want to do something together. And it's not sexual. Support for the Hilo comes from Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to email to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Each week, we will do a curiosity challenge in which Dolly or I pose a question to each other, encompassing the Hilo's ethos of covering all things from the philosophical to the personal to the surreal. Dolly, my question to you this week is, in the pre-Google times of our childhood, how did you find out Father Christmas wasn't real? And how did you feel? God, it was a horrible day. Because my mum had gone above and beyond to really keep up the facade. I'm talking fake snow boot prints on the living room floor. She used to shake sleigh bells while hiding behind the bins on Christmas morning. (laughs) And then a girl at school told me, I was too young, I think, seven years old. She told me that there was no Father Christmas. There's always one stupid kid who ruins it for everyone else. And I asked my mum if it was true. And she said over and over again, Father Christmas is the spirit of Christmas. And that's what matters. (laughs) And God love her, she still says it to this day. And then finally she said, well, it is dad and I who fill your stocking. And I was like, whatever, mum. I knew that already. And then I went to my bedroom and cried. I always used to hear jingling when my stocking was filled and I thought it was Santa's sleigh bells. And then one day, with the most ghastly clarity, I realised it was my mum's gold bracelets jangling (laughs) together. So you were seven. I think I was nine. I think I got to nine or ten. I was the youngest of four. Still am the youngest of four. And I was very indulged by my siblings, so I think really enjoyed it as well. Oh, I would have loved that. Biscuits on the mantelpiece and mud from the boots by the fireplace and some milk being drunk and all of that malarkey. I'll tell you what, if you do spot Father Christmas early on Christmas morning this year, your best bet of snapping the sneaky bugger would be on the Google Pixel 2 camera. <laughs> the Google Pixel 2 is the world's best smartphone camera. It gives you absolutely brilliant photos. It captures every moment, even in low light, so that starry nights look as good as sunny days. Even Santa in his sleigh. What a mean-spirited, opportunistic thing to say. If you see Father Christmas, you should offer him a brandy, not pap him. A journalist's work is never done. <laughs> Thanks very much to the Google Pixel 2. It's now time for the top line. Read by Dolly, real name Hannah, Alderton. This is the top line. British railway lines that were closed in the 1960s could be reopened to kickstart crucial housing developments or help create new economic opportunities. One of the first of these lines that will be restored is the rail link between Oxford and Cambridge. A third of women's refuges face closure in the wake of new government funding reforms. The government has published proposals to remove short-term supported housing from the welfare system, which allows women to pay for refuge from their housing benefit and accounts for more than half of the services funding. Refuges are already struggling to meet growing demand. There's been a volcanic eruption in Bali. Mount Agung has been in a state of unrest for several weeks and eventually began emitting smoke and ash. 100,000 people were evacuated and flights were put on hold for three days due to the ash that could harm planes. Salted caramel. 
It's highly addictive. Sure and is. now there's science to prove it. A new study from the University of Florida found that when we scoff something sweet, salty or fatty, the brain releases heroin-like chemicals called endogenous opioids. Salted caramel is the meeting place of all three and scientists found that it causes a phenomenon called hedonic escalation. Disney faces a three million pound lawsuit because it once owned Miramax. A Canadian actress has named both Disney and Weinstein in an incident where the disgraced producer exposed himself. The family-friendly Disney, who one anonymous Disney HR said knew all about Weinstein's misconduct, are fighting the suit. The UK has offered a divorce bill to the EU worth up to £49 billion, according to the BBC. The amount of money that the UK will pay the EU to leave has been shrouded in mystery, though Theresa May suggested £20 billion earlier this year. Though Brussels has yet to confirm anything, it would seem that this has now more than doubled. America has broken its record for online shopping sales, with $6.59 billion spent on Cyber Monday, November the 27th, 2017. That is almost a billion dollars more than last year. Christ. North Korea has launched its highest ever ballistic missile. The missile, which launched early on Wednesday and landed in Japanese waters, reached an altitude of 2,800 miles. North Korea has continued to develop nuclear missiles even after widespread global condemnation. The UN Security Council is due to convene an emergency session to discuss the latest test. Uh-oh, the cost of Christmas dinner is set to increase with even the UK's cheapest supermarket spread destined to be 16% more expensive than last year. God, I do think that's quite big. According to an impressively detailed Good Housekeeping magazine survey, a Christmas meal for eight people, including 11 essential components, bought at the lowest price available, has risen from £19.82 last year to £23.53 this festive season. Around the table, this equates to £2.94 per head compared with... 248 last year. Ofcom has revealed that over 50% of 11 and 12 year olds have social media profiles, despite the minimum age of most platforms being 13. The NSPCC called on the government to act on the issue of underage profiles, but more than four in 10 parents said they would allow their children to use social media ahead of them reaching the minimum age required. And that was the top line. I definitely experience regular hedonic escalation. <laughs> I can I can absolutely say that sweet, salty or fatty releases heroin-like chemicals. Yeah, it's the magic three. Um, I'm sad about the social media profiles. 11 and 12, it's far too young to be having free reign over the internet. Mm. I think it's extraordinary that the level, that the age of consent to a platform is 13. I agree. Um, and... The, by far the worst for me was that a third of women's refuges might be closing. I know. Why Why has there not been more about that? Well, do you know, it's actually, it's Sam Baker from The Pool this morning actually tweeted saying, I'm so glad this story has finally got into mainstream media and I traced back through The Pool article that this was information that broke in October. It's like the period poverty story from North Yorkshire when there were the teenagers truanting in North Yorkshire mm. that we talked about briefly with Tina last week. There is just such scant coverage of this. It's mm. really interesting. Um, anyway, I'm devastated by that. I hope that that doesn't come into play. Yeah, it's very sad. <laughs> 
Australia's first clinic dedicated to freezing women's eggs has opened in Sydney and a spokesperson has revealed that a number of Australian businesses could soon pay for female employees to freeze their eggs. A number of companies, including a large bank, is said to be considering including egg freezing for women in their health and benefits plan, which has led to lots of discussions about whether or not this is a generous company initiative or an invasion. Essentially, it takes something very personal, the decision of if and when to have a child, and makes it corporate. As one listener emailed us this week in a frenzy, will I miss out on promotions if I choose not to have my eggs frozen? I spoke to Dr Venkat from the Harley Street Fertility Clinic yesterday to see what she thought about this move, which has been happening in America since 2014, particularly in the tech world. Now we freeze the eggs by a different technique. It's called vitrification. This one is much more successful. And if we freeze eggs by this technique, when we take the eggs out, uh, at least 90 to 95 of them survive out of 100. And with the previous technique, the old method, only 40 or 50 of them will survive. And has there been an increase in women having their eggs frozen? Absolutely. I mean, nowadays we are seeing more and more uh, women coming forward to freeze the eggs. Five years ago, we had one or two women freezing the eggs. And that is only usually due to cancer and other uh, premature ovarian failure in the family. But now... The women are uh, freezing the eggs for more social reasons, like, you know, not ready to start the family or they got, they haven't found the right partner, these kind of reasons, and uh, they come and freeze the eggs. And also they have come to know about this um, new method of freezing and found that the success rate is better because five years ago we were all freezing by the old method and the success rate was not good. It was not worth freezing at that stage. But now technology has improved. They would like to make use of the technology and have something for their peace of mind. In your industry, in the world of fertility, is this seen as a positive step? Absolutely, I think so. Because uh, nowadays we always say, like, you know, there is a gender gap and women are not respected in their profession and they are not treated well. But this is something very different. The women are given this um, support by the company and I think it's a good idea for a female to make use of this if they would like to start their family later. Well, Dr. Venkat, and I'm sure many of her contemporaries, clearly see this as a huge medical Mm. advancement. Dolly, where do you stand on this? I'm really, really in two minds about it. In one sense, I think... Women being able to freeze their eggs is one of the most emancipating and empowering advancements in medicine. This part of a woman's life, having children, is hinged on still finding the right man and having faith that that man will commit to starting a family. And as we know, there is a time pressure on a woman's biology in a way that there just isn't on a bloke's. Not as much of a time pressure as newspapers have you believe, I think. And I really, really hate the scaremongering around it that... I'm becoming so much more aware of as I see my friends kind of move into their 30s. But there is a time pressure. So if freezing eggs can buy a woman a little time while she waits for the right partner or she saves some money or she gets her career to a place she'd like to to have it, I think that's a really, really great thing. However, I think it really has to be the woman's idea and choice. And I do worry that by big corporations saying that they will pay for it, unconsciously a woman will feel a pressure to opt for it. 
I'm also in two minds. I support anything that helps a woman escape the dreaded cultural as much as biological mm. time clock. Exactly. With all those societal pressures. But I also feel like our frenzied listener, that having a policy like this creates an atmosphere where it feels like you have to freeze your eggs. Mm. That to have a baby when you are young goes against corporate policy. Well, some people have commented that it's slightly the handmaid's tale, and I do understand where that fear comes from. It feels a little bit like a board of let's face it, probably men, are controlling or coercing a woman's fertility. Mm. And I also think it it actually just makes no sense to go straight to egg freezing as an option before a number of other problems aren't fixed for women in the workplace first. I'd I'd rather they were, yeah, I'd rather they were spending that money on like subsidising nurseries. Exactly. Like, why not first create and foster an environment where women feel they can balance a job with motherhood? Why not provide proper maternity or paternity leave or on-site creches? Side note, will the Hilo be um, paying some subsidised nursery costs for me? <laughs> I'll have to go to the drawing board on that. Also, why are we always trying to cheat biology? We were, we were talking earlier about how some celebrities possibly more on that next week, um, think that they can cheat death. And I kind of feel like culturally we are always trying. I know we're an ageing society, so it does make sense that we are considering doing things later from a cultural point of view. But as you say, shouldn't we make sure that working mothers are more supported in the workplace, which is the only way to achieve parity, rather than encouraging them just to hold off for a bit longer? Also, and this is just me personally, but I'm just never trusting of a corporation that makes you too dependent on it. It's very the It really is. What this could create is an environment where people feel grateful to their employees for this incredible gift of reproductive health care. But actually, if you're being completely honest, its prime motive has to be that it wants to encourage women putting off having children for as long as possible so they can spend more time in their office and make more money for that company. I'm sorry, I find that sinister. And I do find it sinister when a company does something under the guise of affection or reward or hospitality to gain a sense of loyalty or even debt from their employees, kind of trapping them into making Mm. more and more money for them. And I know this is a very poor point of comparison, but when I was working in a TV production company for about three and a half years, it was in this very cool warehouse space office in East London. And in in that building, there was a very successful advertising agency And they provided every day the most incredible, like restaurant standard free lunch for all their employees. And they also did all these kind of after work workshops, like fencing or pottery lessons. And initially I thought, oh God, how amazing is this? What a creative and inspiring environment for creative people. Until one day a colleague of mine, who's much more jaded, pointed out, you know, the reason they do this is that so none of their employees ever leave the building. They feel super grateful when really in the grand scheme of things, for this company, pottery classes and lunch, you know, it's just small change. It's small expenditure for them and it keeps everyone working for them perhaps longer than they would otherwise. And as you said about the David Eggers book, The Circle, I was discussing this with my friend Lauren and she said it is it is this dystopian um, book, The Circle, about a very similar work environment. Have you not read it? No, I haven't. Oh, it is brilliant. The Netflix film of it starring Emma Watson and Tom Hanks is is less brilliant. Um, I have to be honest, fencing would not be an incentive to keep me (laughs) at your company, particularly if I was being chivvied 
into it. But you're right, Dolly. It is just like pottery. No, I just... <laughs> um, I hear you. The, the matter is complicated because there are many women who would be so, so grateful for this. And, you know, it, it, I would hate to actually take away from that for them. I'd hate to vote against, mm. for want of a, for another word, against this and thus deny them of the opportunity if they can't afford to do it for themselves. I actually spoke to one such woman, an editor named Lucy Walker, who was recently told that her chances of having children were dwindling fast and that she should freeze her eggs now. Lucy and her boyfriend decided to start trying right away. So they didn't. she didn't choose to freeze her eggs. But she says that had they not been at a place in their relationship where there was a possibility to do that, then she wouldn't have been able to afford to freeze her eggs. Mm. I was told it would cost upwards of £6,000 per round due to the medication I'd need due to my low count. And of course, ideally, one would opt for a few rounds to increase chances of success. So, you know, you're looking at a 20k bill there. Quite frankly, faced with a crippling freezing bill, if my employer had been willing to pay, I'd have been truly grateful. Perhaps I'm naive, but I feel like it seems more of a benefit in line with health insurance and gym membership, etc. She also points out that there's a key difference between women being encouraged or simply offered. So I suppose there is a big case of kind of HR framing this exactly. in a really responsible policy. Exactly. As Lucy points out, the success rate is only 30% at the moment. So it's hardly a guarantee to freeze your eggs and take that promotion. Yeah, and this is where I feel really torn because I'm so, so sad for women who don't have the opportunity to try alternative routes. And it feels like a great many things in life that this shouldn't be hinged on something as unfair and completely fucking random as economic privilege, whether you can procreate or not. Yes, but the older you get, I find the more you realise is really affected by economic privilege. I mean, yeah. my, my sister who's been suffering from cancer, this is a really strong example of when people say, how is she? And she's actually great now. She's got the all clear, which is really exciting. Ooh. But she, <laughs> but she, one of the things that was really hard is people assume that she was just lying on her bed in a silken gown and a turban. Sometimes she was, you know, for six months whilst everyone came and visited. But she couldn't afford to. She's mm. single. She did not have a husband to help support her through that time. She worked full time. Mm. There wasn't someone to whisk her off for lovely spa breaks there wasn't someone to make sure she was having massages every other day and of course as her family and her friends we we tried to spoil her in small ways but the economic privilege I suddenly realised almost becomes no clearer than when someone is really ill because to have that financial alleviation for want of a better word so yeah you're really sick yeah it's shit but at least you don't have to work at least you can be pampered at least you can go and do lovely things you can't have that mm. and so you really realize i know it's, it's slightly going off topic you really realize as you say the mm. the economic privilege even in this case of procreation in the worst possible scenario i can imagine and this is a bit dystopian but not really not now not in this age a senior level exec takes a killer job and she decides to freeze her eggs five years later a geriatric mother she chooses to have babies that she's always wanted and the fertilisation of her frozen eggs doesn't work would she forever berate herself for making that decision had she been in a position to have children naturally at the time imagine the guilt and while some would say well she had autonomy she could have taken the job and still had children well we know that in some cases that's actually not really true I hear about women being forced out of jobs or coming back to a job which has been cut up essentially a demotion all oh, the time. Oh, it's as old as time, that I story. personally know of two yeah, women this has happened to. And the bosses, might I add, are not always men. Mm. So no, it's not like she always feels like she has that choice. Sometimes she might feel like she doesn't have a choice and that career-wise, it's now or never. And, you know, she makes the wrong call encouraged by a corporate policy. I don't have a satisfying final conclusion for my 
for my thoughts on this story, if I'm being completely honest. I don't want it to be the default for companies as I think, well, I don't want it to be the forceful default for companies as I think motherhood and career can work in tandem, but only with the proper support of a workplace, which I think is not the experience for most women currently. Mm. But I also think that having children is a raison d'etre for a number of women, if not a raison d'etre, then certainly something that would bring them great joy and fulfillment. And if women find themselves struggling, it brings me great comfort to know that their employer would support them to try an alternative route. I'd like to see, before this was rolled out across all sorts of businesses, not just the big tech companies and banks, I would like to see men being more supported to go part-time in their jobs. I would like to see longer paternity leave. I would like to see subsidised nursery care for both men and women. We seem to forget that just because the woman carries the child, and by God, does she carry, the man is also having a child too. I can honestly tell you 20 things I would like to see change Mm. before this becomes something that is rolled out widespread. That said, I do like the idea of a really, really hardworking employee going to her line manager or her mm. HR manager and saying, do you think instead of a bonus you could pay for this? I, you know, I do like the sound of it. Either way, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this in future and certainly at the big corporations. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Taylor Swift and Donald Trump, two individuals becoming increasingly and inextricably linked as a number of media outlets criticised Taylor Swift for being a Trumpian figurehead. In a widely circulated piece on The Guardian at the weekend, an anonymous writer writes, In the years since Donald Trump was elected, the entertainment world has been largely united in its disdain for his presidency. But a notable voice has been missing from that chorus, that of Taylor Swift, the world's biggest pop star. Her silence is striking, highlighting the parallels between the singer and the president, their adept use of social media to foster a die-hard support base, their solipsism, their laser focus on the bottom line, their support among the alt-right. Swift songs echo Mr Trump's obsession with petty score-settling in their repeated references to her celebrity feuds or report in painstaking detail on her failed romantic relationships. Often there is crossover. The message is quintessentially Trump. Everyone is out to get me, but I win anyway. I'm not surprised that this piece was kept anonymous. I don't have (laughs) masses of wonderful things to say about Taylor Swift, as you well know. But I think this comparison is tenuous at best. It slightly reminds me of when I did my dissertation where I... (laughs) I drawed parallels. You drawed parallels? I drawed them and I got to one, amazingly, in English. I drew parallels between these two completely random plays. And when my supervisor pointed out that no one had ever compared them before, I rather arrogantly said, well, that's what makes this such a special and exciting piece of work. And he said, no, it's because they have absolutely nothing in common. I thought my dissertation was the best thing I've ever done and I still do to this day. I dig it out sometimes and read it and think, God, this is marvellous. And I got such a bad mark for it. Oh, I'd actually like to read that. It was on the building's Roman. 
the adolescent growing up in literature. Anyway, back to this comparison. So the piece garnered a lot of response, but it's not actually anything new. Taylor has been roundly criticised for her political silence. In fact, she's actually opted for total silence this year, full stop, deleting all her social media and using it only to promote or share positive reviews of her new album, Reputation. But somehow in doing this, she has become the plate or receptacle for every negative political or global happening. Dorian Linsky writes in GQ this month. It's a brilliant piece, actually. For a decade, Swift enjoyed a traditional ascent, a canny young singer-songwriter who transitioned from country to pop on a rising tide of sales. But her 2014 album, 1989, changed the rules of engagement completely. This pop juggernaut made her the most talked-about star in the world, a lightning rod for accelerating cultural anxieties about race, gender and privilege. Is she feminist? Is she racist? Does she support Trump? On and on it goes. You can't discuss or even be Taylor Swift without discussing how she is discussed. Whether you're a fan, a hater or a shrugging bystander, the sheer volume of opinion is exhausting. Yeah, well, I know it's an obvious kind of hackneyed point to echo, but she is so much more than a pop star now, isn't she? It's like Mm. we use her as this kind of um, vessel that we sort of dump all our socio-political anxieties and fears into. I'm disappointed by Taylor's political silence this year, though I'm not surprised, actually, after what I imagine to be a hugely stressful sexual harassment case in which she famously sued and won an Australian DJ for a symbolic $1 after he put his hand up her skirt in 2012, and obviously all the critiques she's had about her supermodel girl squad though as a vice editor sam wolfson tweeted this weekend i think that it's fine not to be overtly political but a time of unprecedented injustice it is criminal not to say anything at all especially if the motivation to stay silent is commercial but that said when did we decide that a pop star had to be so many things why can't they just be pop stars and i was thinking about this when i read an interview this weekend by eva wiseman with little mix who are the biggest girl band in the uk right now she was like why aren't they having the fun that the Spice Girls had? And it's because the anxiety of having to be so many things must be crippling. The idea that all this means that Taylor Swift is a Trumpian figurehead, though, that's just nuts. I read that little mix We'll tweet a link to this. Yeah, it was so tiring and it was just so sort of sluggish and lasonic and exhausting. It was fatigue. Yeah, fatigue, there was no energy. But Eva did that thing that she always does where she just makes it so much bigger than an interview and it's kind of a comment piece on um, consumerism now, I think, and how to be commercial. I used to be conversationally much more militant about how people use their platform and the correct way to use your platform. Increasingly, as I get older, as hippie-ish as this sounds, I don't think anyone sort of has to do anything with their platform or fame or voice. Everyone can do what the fuck they want as long as it's not hurting people. Arguably, she's not helping anyone if she's just making money and making music, which is a bit shallow and useless and a bit uninteresting I think making lots of money is fine I don't think people especially women should be demonized for that but it is a bit hollow if that's all you're doing and it is understandable that people might feel disappointed in someone who does this or they might lose a bit of respect but we can't tell people to be politically outspoken if they don't want to be and as you said in other ways she has been very active it was just making me think suddenly that the Victoria's Secret show happened last week and have you noticed that people have given up trying to sort of hold it responsible for any um, current cultural, mm. you know, it, it now just sort of floats by and no one really gives a shit. It's become so, it's so rich but so irrelevant. It's it like a irrelevant. pop star. It's like a pop star that everyone's given up on. Exactly, but it is irrelevant. That's how it should be, you know. 
I called up Laura Snapes, a music journalist for publications including The Telegraph, The Financial Times and BuzzFeed, who writes very lyrically and interestingly on Taylor Swift amongst many other pop culture figures. So I was really interested to hear her take on it. She said, Taylor is clearly more into her bottom line than being a political spokesperson. And it's understandable that people find that really distasteful right now. She said, echoing Sam Wilson's tweet. But nobody is demanding that Calvin Harris talks about politics. There's a level of misogyny at work here. And it's mad that The Guardian in that piece is enshrining that double standard. I love Laura Snapes on on musicians. She's my favourite music writer, I think. And I could not agree more with that. And I think it's a really smart observation to make. Culturally, we just demand and expect so much more of women in the public eye. And they're so much more likely to disappoint us. Exactly. Why aren't white male pop stars being lambasted in the same way? Justin bloody Bieber's doing just fine. Or Justin Bieber, as my mum called him this weekend. (laughs) One of Taylor's best friends, backing dancer Todrick Hall, actually spoke about this in September. He said, many people have been tweeting me she supports Trump she probably voted for Trump they're making this huge assumption when Taylor has never to my knowledge come out and said anything pro-Trump that was one of the major things that was tweeted at him he said and I'm like so you're mad that she might support Donald Trump but you're not mad that Kanye has been very openly pro-Trump I don't understand that maybe one day Taylor will start being super political and using her voice to do the things that people think she should be doing but even then she probably will be ridiculed for not being vocal enough or not being on the right side so a side-by-side comparison of Taylor and Kanye would be crass Kanye is a black man Taylor is a white woman but I mean, he's got a bloody point. I just think it's just a really lazy assumption and conflation. I dare say, even lazier than my dissertation. <laughs> Laura Snape said she thought it was likely there was legal action going on, which I thought was quite interesting. And by by that, she means it's most likely that Taylor is taking legal action against those outlets who accuse her of essentially espousing Aryan values. Well, and quite rightly, I understand why she's doing that. I think because both Trump and Taylor Swift represent white privilege and capitalism and ambition, you can say they're similar or assume they hold identical political or moral values is an enormous leap at best. This reminds me of a brilliant tweet by the journalist... um, and speaker Emma Gannon last week, where she said, you know, it's a really uncomfortable truth that I am in the position I am career-wise, not just because I'm really good at my job, but because I'm white white and privileged. And and I retweeted it. And I have to say that me and you also represent white privilege and capitalism and and ambition. But again, I wouldn't say that we espouse pro-Trumpian values. To go back to what Dorian Linsky writes in GQ, it's like we no longer see Taylor Swift as a person. She's a vehicle or a plate or a vessel for all our political and global concerns. I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if she gets blamed for the North Korean missile missile program next. I'm sure there's some way of linking her to Kim, Kim Jong-un. I have a tendency to be naive about people's motivations, especially if they are famous with a sort of juggernaut behind them. But I can't help but think that a young woman is at the heart of this and it's very hard for me to reconcile that with the extraordinary misogyny at play. Laura concluded our chat by saying, I kind of admire Taylor for not dignifying the absurdity with a response. Yeah, and I've got to say, I just really hope she doesn't write some bloody awful song about it. Well, if she does, part of me wants to go, for the love of fucking God, let her write the stupid song. (laughs) It's time for Ask the Hilo. We've got a comical but nuanced question today. It's about friendship, as many things often are. But it's also about chicken. Hi, Pandora and Dolly. 
A few months ago, I hosted a Sunday roast at my flat in London for four friends, one of whom is vegan. I cooked everything separately as she requested, and as I'm serving up in the kitchen, I see her eating the chicken from the serving plate before it's even left the kitchen. It sounds quite funny. It gets more serious. Shut up, Dolly. It ended with her screaming at me, screaming at my two friends, threatening to leave just as I'd served everything, and then me asking her to leave. After she left, I received 10 minutes worth of long, abusive WhatsApp messages from her saying that I was trying to approve something by doing a lunch and that I shouldn't judge her for being vegan. I mean, most confusing women. Since then, none of us had spoken to her much. Four months on, I'm away travelling and I see that one of my friends is hanging out with her again. I appreciate people can do what they like. I'd hate to tell her not to be friends with her, but I can't help think that I think a little less of my friend, especially as she's doing it as soon as I've left. Please let me know if I should approach her about this and how. This is a bonkers story, this. Well, there are two things at play here, really, She's I a think. bad vegan. Well, what's so funny is when I read this question, I remember when I gave up meat about five years ago, initially I found it really difficult and I often would get incredibly pissed in that first month and eat KFC. <laughs> And oh I would, my God. and I would say to my friend, I'd be like, "Shh, don't tell anyone." And actually, but at least you admitted it. This woman was caught eating the chicken. That sounds like a metaphor. Yeah. She's caught eating the chicken and going, "Stop judging me for being vegan." Yeah. It's like, She's... mate, we're, ju- we're judging you for eating the chicken and then being vile about it. But also, you know, we all do what we can do. You and I talk about this a lot. You, you don't have to be a bastion of veganism uh, of a particular. Yeah, you know, you can be a vegetarian who sometimes eats French onion soup. Am I talking about myself? Maybe. You can be... What's French onion soup? Beef stock. <laughs> um, you can be a feminist who waxes her legs. You know, it, the, the point is, is that she's obviously uncomfortable and insecure about her decision and not properly committed to it because she flew off the handle. And her going crazy at you is actually her shouting at herself. She's embarrassed. So the two questions here really are, first of all, do you want to be friends with this woman? I think With prob- this bad vegan? With this bad vegan. I think probably not. She doesn't want to be friends with her, does she? She doesn't sound that upset She doesn't sound, no. I, I think she's more like, by the way, this insane thing happened by my bad vegan friend. But now my friend's hanging out with her. What the fuck? Do okay, I get so we'll, off? We'll, I, I well, let's park the vegan. Yeah, I, don't, not... I don't think, um, I no, I don't. I know you're away travelling and it makes one feel particularly sensitive about your sort of connections That's back home and thing. who's hanging out without you. But if she's decided to forgive bad vegan that's not really your call she didn't murder anyone she just ate some chicken so let them be friends you don't have to be friends don't send and we've all done this don't send a snarky whatsapp that goes oh hanging out with bad vegan i see yeah yeah exactly i think that's very good advice and i think as pandora said you you just have to trust that they've they've probably discussed this and confronted it and this isn't you know this isn't a statement of her betrayal against you and also just feel bad for bad vegan because don't bother to cook for her again because bad vegan is is obviously not in a great place if she's eating chicken and shouting and 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 being rude in your house and sending you mean whatsapp messages but you know i think you should take that as a compliment because obviously your chicken was very very good you obviously make a mean chicken my it friend tempted her back to the dark and side. as pandora said you know people are allowed to have friends that maybe you don't quite understand that friendship it's not really any of your business i mean it's dementing i grant you yeah but, you know, maybe that friend's had a lobotomy. And also, maybe she wooed her round with a nut roast. <laughs> I'm very sorry if it sounds like we haven't given particular gravitas to this. We are concerned for your friendships. Um, but we think that you will come out stronger from this. You will. To all the chicken lovers and non-chicken lovers out there, may we be united. 
yeah, we have to cross boundaries on these things. <laughs> Thanks very much for tuning into another episode of The Hilo. Thank you to Soho Radio for hosting us in your little basement studio. Thank you to Google Pixel 2. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show on Twitter, Natch, or you can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com, or you can do both. See you next week. Bye. Bye.